So there's the book of Ezekiel in about five minutes. As I said, Ezekiel was a peculiar prophet. Some of the music that we, we just heard, we just heard uh, that song, uh, Greater Things Are Yet to Be Done in This City. Now, it's interesting because I, I mentioned earlier in the service a missionary to Thailand. That song was actually composed in Thailand when a, Christian, a, Christian, a group of Christian musicians were in Thailand playing music. They got themselves invited into bars, bars frequented by Europeans or Americans who traveled to Thailand for various reasons, many of them not good. But the, the, the Thai people and the bar owner didn't know what was being sung. But here they are singing Christian songs in these bars to these European English-speaking tourists who knew very well what was being sung and what they were being reminded of by the band playing in the bar. But all along the way, while they were doing this, while they were playing and testifying, bringing praise to God in the midst of spiritual darkness, and they were overcome by the darkness of the city, and yet the words of this song came to them and came together and they composed that song. You're the God of this city. You're the Lord of this nation. You are the hope of these people in the midst of the spiritual darkness. Is that so? Can it be? Imagine you are Israel. Jerusalem is surrounded. The Babylonian army has come in strength, and it's only a matter of time before the city is overwhelmed. There is no escape. There is no way out. Many of the people, like Ezekiel, have already been carried away captive. And they have this hope that Jerusalem is going to stand, that they're going to be able to quickly return. Somehow, they're going to be victorious over the Babylonians. But it isn't going to happen. Why not? God, aren't you the God of that city? God, aren't you the Lord of these people? God, aren't you the hope of this nation? And when it doesn't turn out like they hoped it would, then maybe not. And yet, the song goes on to say, as does Ezekiel, greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in that city. And I would suggest to you this morning that greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. That like Ezekiel, we are on mission and even as Ezekiel then is faced being on mission in the midst of, he's a man on mission in a foreign land, but he's a man on mission in a foreign land, not to those people of the foreign land. He's a man on mission in a foreign land, Babylon, to his own people, Israel, to proclaim the gospel to people have, who have forgotten it, to people who have neglected it, to people who have turned aside from hope in God to hope in many other things. And yet the word, of the, God, the word of the Lord goes out to them through this prophet. How does he do it? A spiritually hardened people who don't listen anymore. Can you identify with that? How do you communicate truth about God to a people who don't seem to want to hear anymore? Been there, done that, now checked out, going in another direction, thanks a lot. How can, well, Ezekiel is a peculiar prophet. Ezekiel star, starts out, in fact, by not talking. He starts out, though, with these object lessons, many of them. I want to talk this morning about Ezekiel's call, like ours. We'll learn something about our ministry. We'll learn something about how he carries it out. How can we carry out our ministry? What's the means? What is the thrust? What's the point? What's the purpose, the direction, the message? 
So think ministry, think means, think message. That's the direction we're going in the book of Ezekiel. There's a historical setting here, but there's something here for us that I don't want us to miss. All right? First of all, our ministry out of Ezekiel's call. We'll find that Ezekiel, Ezekiel is... Oh, well, let me, let me pause for a minute, a story to tell. I don't know if you can even see that picture. Maybe in your notes you can or in the front of the bulletin you can, but I picked that one out just because of the savage beast. The, the armies are in. That's not unlike Babylon. And maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you can, can identify with what it is to go out on Monday morning and speak to the hordes with their armor and their flaming torches and probably their pitchforks. And they are not a, a ready, receptive audience for what you'd love to share with them. How do we respond to that? How do we respond with the story that we have to tell? Our ministry, our means, our message. Okay, first of all, Ezekiel's call. Ezekiel's call is found in the first three chapters. Ezekiel is a prophet compelled. Ezekiel is a prophet compelled, first of all, in chapter 1. With the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Ezekiel has an Isaiah 6 moment. Ezekiel sees the glory of God as it really is. He gets one of those, and that's going to be important in the book of Ezekiel. I'll, I'll come back to that. But chapter 1 has this, has this very confusing, and no, I'm not going to try to explain it this morning. That would be my time. So I'm not going to try to explain all the eyes and wheels and angels with six wings and all that stuff this morning, but it's there, and there is a compelling, strangely compelling and glorious image of the very presence of God in the angels surrounding his presence that is set before us in chapter 1. And that image of the very glorious presence of God compels Ezekiel. It starts there. The basis of his call starts there, but from there, we are likewise ambassadors for Christ, and we are compelled by Christ, by his presence, by his love for us. The love of Christ compels us. Ezekiel's specifically commissioned. It says in chapter 2 and verse 1, and he said to me, son of man. Now, son of man is an interesting term. It also means son of Adam. You have some interesting things going on in Ezekiel in the start of the book. You have the, the, this great storm of the Lord's presence coming across towards Jerusalem. It's not unlike the initial creation where, where a wind, the Spirit of God, hovers across the, um, the uh, unformed world. And then, then the Lord speaks, and the Lord gives a command to a man, Adam, Hadam. And here Ezekiel's the son of Adam, and he's given a command again. Before it was a command not to eat. Here it's a command to eat a scroll, to take it and to eat it. A lot of interesting things going on with that son of man, son of Adam. There's connections in Ezekiel from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. But I'm getting sidetracked already, and we've hardly started. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, I will speak with you. And he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Ezekiel specifically commissioned. He's commissioned in the midst of the mission's seeming failure. There's trouble. It's not going to be easy. In fact, in chapter 3, he tells them, you're going to tell them and they're not going to hear you. You are compelled by who God is. You are commissioned by a word from the Lord to go and to tell. And it's not a matter of the response. It's not a matter of who's going to respond, how they're going to hear you. We're not accountable 
for how people respond, we are accountable to go and to tell. We are accountable to proclaim. Ezekiel is a prophet compelled. Ezekiel is a prophet who is not afraid to proclaim. One of the things we ought to get out of Ezekiel is I will not be afraid to proclaim. Now, proclaim seems like a stand on the street corner in your, on your soapbox kind of a word. Let's, let's dial it down just to tell. I won't be afraid to speak up. I won't be afraid to have that conversation. I won't be afraid to, to, when somebody asks me a question, to go ahead and step out a little farther than I might have in the answer. Be a little more open and a little more vulnerable about what I really believe that they might not. And they, somebody might ridicule me for it. It might not be received well, but that's not the point. The point is, I will not be afraid to proclaim. I won't be afraid to tell what I know. I'm under orders. I'm under compulsion as, as, as sent by the Lord, his ambassador. I'm accountable for faithfulness, not for results. Look at verses 4 to 7 of chapter 2. The descendants also, these descendants of Israel that you're being sent to, they are impudent. They're stubborn. I send you to them and you will say to them, thus says the Lord, and whether they hear or refuse to hear. For they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Now that just doesn't sound pleasant. I don't know why Ezekiel would sit on scorpions. I don't, are they going to make him sit on? I don't know. But I do know that he's a, he's a peculiar sort of dude. Ezekiel does some strange things. God tells him to do some strange things. God definitely pushes out of a comfort zone here in the book of Ezekiel. So he's not afraid to tell. But it's interesting as well how, how he carries out this ministry. What, is, what are the means? How can he do this in a hardened people who don't want to hear? It's not unlike Jeremiah, is it? Jeremiah is sent to a people and they don't want to hear anymore. They say, you can't say things like that around here. Well, Ezekiel's in the same boat. And yet the means of his ministry are also clearly described here. In fact, in the, in the two verses that I already read in chapter 2, he tells them in verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And then what happens in, in, in verse 2? And he, as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and the Spirit set me on my feet. Now, if you go further into Ezekiel, you go to 36, where we've turned the corner again from judgment to restoration. A central part of Ezekiel 36 is the spirit in the new covenant that God says, I will set my spirit upon them. I will work through them. I will cleanse them. I will, I will wash them. I will forgive their sins. I will, I will raise them up. I will set my spirit upon them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. The means of our ministry are, first of all, by God's grace. How is this prophet, this prophet peculiar, as I call him, is, how is he going to show and tell his gospel? He's going to show, his, show the gospel. He's going to show the word of the Lord from his own life, first of all, in what it is that the Spirit compels him to do. It's not going to be in his own means. He doesn't even stand up by his own means. He's going to be told in chapter 2, Ezekiel, be quiet. Some of you think, great, silent witness, I can do that. He's told to be quiet and only say that which God tells him to say. 
So he's told to speak. He's told to speak for God instead of just any idle chatter. Any comforting words that might come to, work, come to mind, he's told to tell God's word. But it's going to be by God's power. God's spirit is going to come upon him. God's enabling, God's grace. I can't do it. Man, a question might arise, and yet I don't have the answer. I don't know the answer. Uh, somebody may challenge people who believe such things. that I don't want to speak up there. But by God's strength, I can. By God's strength, I can. By, God, by God's strength, somebody's upset, they're in trouble, they have great burdens of the normal stuff of light pressing upon them. Their Jerusalem is surrounded, so to speak. I can come along and, would it be all right if I pray for you this week? As I'm praying, I'll, I want to remember you. Can I be praying for you? Would that be all right? Somebody might even slap you down for that, but not very often. But it takes something beyond us even to step forward that much sometimes in a hostile environment, doesn't it? But we're not afraid to proclaim. We're not afraid to speak up. We're not afraid to show out of our own lives what it is that God has done. This, this pushing out into our community, the connections out into our community, the showing something of ourselves to a handful of students up at some of you high school in ways that overwhelm them, in ways that the staff there are still scratching their heads, some of them are trying to figure out why do these people do this? But they figured out that's a very Christmassy thing to do. This is, this is the church that is giving rather than getting. And that is what this is supposed to be about. That, that makes sense. You had a part of that that God would give us more opportunities for that, more opportunities to press out of our comfort zone and to show out of our own lives what it is the Spirit is doing. Our means is to both show and tell the gospel. I said Ezekiel is a, a prophet peculiar. He does some weird things. This prophet peculiar, he's going to use this siege example of Jerusalem that I use with a brick and, and siege works and soldiers and showing and showing that God is separated from his people. He's going to come up with a special kind of bread. Some people think it's a health food bread. It's not. It's a bread of judgment. He's going to come up with a haircut, and it's a bad haircut. And he's going to cut up his hair, and he's going to, he's going to burn some in the fire. He's going to chop some of that hair into little bitty bits. And he's going to take some of his hair, and he's going to scatter it to the wind just like God's people are going to be scattered. He's very creative. God's very creative with his object lessons with how he gets his point across to these people. He's a peculiar prophet. He's, he's told to Ezekiel, pack your bags. You're already in Babylon, but go along with me here. Pack your bags as if you're leaving for exile. And then, no, don't go out through your door. Dig a hole through the wall of your house and go out through that hole, that hole in the wall of your house to go out of your house like you're going into exile. And what are the people going to do? They're going to say, what are they going to do? Say, dude, what are you doing? Why did you put a hole in your house? It doesn't make any sense. Why you got your bags packed? Where do you think you're going? Reminding them. And then when they ask, the Lord says, and when they ask you, what are you doing? Then you can tell to them. How about this? Say, Lord, what would you have me to do that's different, that's extravagant, that's outside of my comfort zone, and that when others see or hear that I'm doing that, they might say, oh, I don't get it. Why are you doing that? And then you can say, maybe it's an example like getting involved with Options 360. 
And then you can give an answer. Why is it I would do something like that? Maybe, maybe you're one of those strange people that would say, I'm good. You know, there's, there, there's an opportunity to serve. Well, I'm going I'm to come back to that later. But what, what would it be? God, what would it be where I would go out of my way in kindness to somebody that they don't understand? Why do you do that? I don't understand. God has been good to me. God has been kinder to me than I ever could have deserved. And so I want to live some of his kindness out. I want to live out some of the kindness and the forgiveness of Jesus. When somebody does something horrible and you have power over them now, you could get them for this one. Boy, you could burn them. And you say, you know, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm just going to let that go. I release you from that. Why would you do that? Because... God in Jesus Christ has released me. What else can I do but release others who have who, done something wrong against me? What is it that I could do? God, give me a chance. I don't know what it looks like for you, but God, give me a chance that I could do something that is so weird, so unusual, and yet gospel that would cause them to ask because then I could answer. Let me be. Let me show and tell. Let me be a peculiar prophet. Didn't Peter say that we are a peculiar people? And some of you are for many other reasons. But, but the reason we're supposed to be peculiar, we're supposed to be different, we're supposed to be unique is that we are God's special people in the midst of this world to show his glory. Oh God, give me, give me a chance to do that. That's our prayer. Make us, Lord, a... Not only did he do strange things, these object lessons, he, he used stories and parables. He told of the useless vine. He told of an unfaithful spouse. He told in chapter 16 and chapter 17 the two eagles, and one of them is jealous of the other. Have you ever heard of two jealous, uh, birds jealous of each other? That's an intriguing story. He, he tells about the evil shepherds who are feeding themselves off of the flock in Ezekiel 34. Well, we had an elders or shepherds meeting on Monday night, and we looked at that chapter. There's something that in what he told them not to do or what he confronted them for not doing, that reminded us as a group of shepherds in this church what it is that we're supposed to be about doing. Those stories are powerful. They're impactful. In chapters 40 and following, he paints a very vivid picture, a compelling picture, the most detailed picture in the Bible of what the future in Jerusalem is going to look like. In fact, the picture that we see in Revelation finds its roots in the book of Ezekiel. A lot of scholars, because they're not sure about the future history or or, or the future promises to Israel and Jerusalem, they're confused about Ezekiel 40 to 48. And yet, he paints a very compelling picture. What is it going to be like? Do Do you know what the future looks like? Do you know what eternity looks like? I can only imagine, but what do we know about being in the very presence of God? There's a booklet in the foyer, in the information stand. I I keep them in there. It's a very short version, little pamphlet-sized version of Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. And I keep that there just because in the midst of loss, when somebody has lost a loved one, what are they wondering about? Heaven. And that book is a great way to talk to them, to paint a compelling picture about heaven, being in, dwelling in forever in the presence of God, what would it be like for you to also be included in that promise of Jesus? I go to prepare a place for you. At the end of the booklet has a, has a, has a nicely done invitation to that. I keep those booklets there. Please take them. When you know of somebody that's in law, so they're wondering about heaven, use that book. 
Follow Ezekiel's pattern. Show them what the future, what God's future can look like. Ezekiel's a prophet compelled. Don't be afraid to proclaim. Ezekiel is a, a prophet peculiar. Ezekiel, he demonstrates, he lives it out. He lives it out in strange ways, but it gets attention. It causes people to ask questions. We need to show and tell the gospel. Be so strange, so involved, so giving of yourself when everybody around you is getting that they can't figure you out and they've got to ask why. There will be an opportunity. You give yourself away. Somebody said years ago, set yourself on fire for Christ and the world will come to see you burn. But give yourself away and they will come, well, to get some of your stuff. But they'll come to find out what in the world is going on here. And that's when we get a chance to ask them. A prophet of peculiar, show and tell the gospel. Finally, our message out of the book of Ezekiel. A prophet with a purpose. Ezekiel stays on message. Ezekiel, now let me give you a breakdown of the book as a whole. I gave you chapters 1 to 3. There's the prophet's call. From the presence of God to the divine call and instruction. The challenge and the warning about going to these people. Chapter 4 through 24 contains, and I wrote these down on your notes, you have them there. Chapters 4 to 24 are God's judgment upon Israel. The details, the, the unpacking, the filling out of what he shows first of all in that one siege object lesson that I think Ezekiel does before the people without any words. He raises their interest. He lives before them in a very strange way that raises their interest that when God tells them to talk, they're listening. So chapters 4 to 24, the consequences of present sin. There are consequences to present sin. One of the things Ezekiel reminds me of is as hard as it is for God to judge his own people, as hard as it is for God to allow his own city, Jerusalem, the apple of his eye, to be carried away into captivity, he will allow it. Sin separates the people from God. Sin separates God's own people from his presence. Our sin will catch us out. We cannot expect to continue in all the blessings and enjoying fellowship with God and walking with God in the Spirit while we harbor hidden sin away. And I'll continue to indulge that off to the side. I can, I'll toy with it and it'll grab hold of me. And I expect that I can keep the facade up, I can keep the act going, I can keep living the life, and I can keep living among the people. But you know what is? My sin will find me out. My sin will draw me out. My sin will separate me from God and from his people. I cannot get away with it. I cannot harbor it and continue it and expect that it will not. Job put it this way. Can a man have fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? No, it'll catch up with us. It will cost us. Part of the message of Ezekiel, there are consequences for present sin. There is a coming judgment upon all nations, chapters 25 to 32. There is a coming judgment. All the world, in Paul's words in Romans, all the world will be accountable before God. So what does that tell us? There are people around us. Church isn't their thing. Jesus is not their deal. They're not interested in what God has to say, but they will be. I guarantee you they will be. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But that may be at the great white throne of judgment. That may be at the time when they are finally being held fully accountable for their sin and their rebellion and their refusal to receive God's grace. Today's the day. Now it's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity. We're the ones that know it. We're the ones that show and tell. Because our message is a message of judgment, but also of restoration. Yes, humanity has fallen. Yes, humanity is broken. Yes, we see it in the world around us. We don't have to try to convince people. The evidence is all around us that humanity is broken. And yet there is, in chapters 33 to 48, the last part of Ezekiel, there is a coming restoration. He doesn't end with condemnation and judgment. No, he ends with restoration of God doing this for his own name's sake, of God restoring a people who don't deserve to be restored because God is going to do it. Look in chapter 11. You get a a preview of that. Look at chapter 11, verse 13. Chapter 11, verse 13. It came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatia, the son of Benaniah, Benaniah, died. Then I fell down in my face, and I cried out with a loud voice, and I said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Will everybody perish, God? And the answer, the answer is given from verse 17 of the same chapter. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from all the peoples. I will assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all these detestable things, all the abominations, all the idols, and I will give them one heart. I will give them a new spirit. I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a tender heart. And they will then walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I don't know why that keeps doing that. I'm not sure what's going on. I suspect there's a problem with my microphone. I hope don't, there's no, no gunshots. There's no, it's just something electrical here. He's a prophet with a purpose. He, he stays on message, but that message is, is we are accountable to God. But our God is a God who restores. Our God is a God who longs to restore. Our God is a God who will restore. That was even evident in in the things Renee shared this morning. One of the problems around the whole trying to come alongside somebody's in a crisis pregnancy is the judgment that they face. They're afraid. They don't know what choices they have, and sometimes they don't have any information. And, and in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the crisis, they make a choice they later regret. But there's this lingering guilt within that magnifies judgment that they feel or perceive from others. Many of you have experienced that. And one of the things Renee talked about was that forgiveness, forgiveness that she herself needed. Forgiveness that in one form or another, for one heinous sin or another, all of us need. There's not a one of us that doesn't need it. And we do not ourselves understand the grace of God in Christ if we do not understand that the horrible way by which he died, he died not for those bad people, he died for me, for my sin, for my guilt. 
And if I will simply confess that he is God's son who died for me, that God would forgive me because of him, if I'll accept that gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that God will forgive me too. God will restore me too. He wants to lovingly, longs to forgive and restore. If only we would receive his son. That's the thrust of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel ends 40, the, the, from chapter 40 to 48. It paints this tremendous picture about a future, about a Jerusalem where the temple is built again. And it's, it's measured. Ezekiel spent, you think, what's going on here? Why, do we ha- why are we getting the schematics for the temple here? Are we supposed to build it? It doesn't quite look like this church. Uh, why are we given that? And he, he, he takes his measuring tape and he measures it this way and he measures it this way and he describes how this looks and he shows what's happening here and he describes what the priests are going to do and he describes the offering and people say, oh, wait a minute, well, my goodness, there are sacrifices in the temple in the future. And to put this in history, I put into your notes, I gave you a timeline. And there's something on that timeline after this present period called the church, there's something in that timeline called the millennial kingdom. And in that millennial kingdom, for a thousand years, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, for a thousand years, it's described in Ezekiel and Isaiah, only in Revelation do we learn it's 1,000 years long, and so we call it millennium for a thousand years. But that, that is coming in the future, but during that time, Jesus Christ will return, he will reign as king on a throne like David did over Jerusalem and Israel and from Jerusalem he will be king over all the world for a thousand years Satan will be bound and it will be literally thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven there's the answer to that prayer or the beginning of the answer to that prayer now in the midst of that time there is a temple in Jerusalem and in the midst of that time of the temple in Jerusalem there are blood sacrifices just like there were in the Old Testament you say wait a minute how can that be why would that be This is one of the intriguing things. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things about Ezekiel that people wrestle with because they say, that can't be so, it can't be true because Jesus has died. He is our sacrifice. His death for us is the means of of forgiveness for our sins. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews said, couldn't take away sin. Those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do it. Now that Christ has come, now that Christ has died, there's no more need for a sacrifice for sin. So why would in this future temple there be sacrifices? And yet Ezekiel makes clear that there are, unless we have to reimagine that means something other than what it says. Why would that be? Did the Old Testament sacrifices save anybody? Did the lamb at Passover save anybody? Did the two goats on the Day of Atonement save anybody? They didn't. They pointed toward what God would do. Jesus Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. In the same way, we read past those, oh, that bloody Old Testament, but that was, it was object lessons. Much more vivid than this tile square. Every Old Testament sacrifice was an object lesson. This is what sin causes. This is what it does. This is why there's a need for an innocent sacrifice to die for sin. What's going to happen in the kingdom era? What's going to happen during that millennial? There will be a whole new generation of people being born during that time that haven't seen even the face of sin that you've seen. They haven't seen the horrors of sin. And those sacrifices are going to remind them this is what sin costs. 
those sacrifices are going to point back to the cross in the same way that the Old Testament ones point, pointed toward. It's all about our Savior and what it is that he did for us. The book closes, chapters 47 and 48, with instructions about who's going to live where. And you may think, I don't get that either. I'm not even in one of the tribes of Israel. Why do I care? You can bet the people in Babylon carried out of Israel who didn't expect to ever see it again, you can bet that they cared. That there was going to be a place for everyone, not only for those ones who were last carried out of Jerusalem, but there's a place in his kingdom for those earlier who were scattered by Assyria over a hundred years previous to this. All of those tribes are included in this. And it emphasizes that in the Messiah's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, it tells us this. There is a going to be a place for them to abide with him, to dwell again with the glory of God in his kingdom. In the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God, one of the compelling visions in chapters 8 to 11 that Ezekiel gets, he sees the glory of God depart from the temple. He's taken by God in a vision from Babylon, where he's already captive. He's taken back to Jerusalem, and, and he's shown the temple. And he's shown the idolatry that's going on in the temple, and he sees the glory of God. And the glory of God is there above the mercy seat and above the cherubim in the temple. And the glory of God comes up from the mercy seat and from those cherubim. And it comes out to the threshold, the main front door to the temple. And it hovers there. And then the glory of God from that threshold of the temple, God's very presence moves out to the eastern gate of the city. Out the front of the temple courts and the eastern gate right in front there. And it hovers there. And then the glory of God departs from that eastern gate, goes across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. Delays there just a bit. And then it's gone. It's like the presence of God is reluctant to leave, but because of their sin, leave he must. Now, I told you that to tell you this. When Jesus returns to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, he comes down the road from Bethany. Oops, I better go over here. He comes down the road from Bethany. He comes to the Mount of Olives. And there atop the Mount of Olives, he looks across the Kidron Valley at Jerusalem spread before him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not have me. If only you know this, the day of your visitation. But you did not. Behold, your house is left to you, desolate, empty. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He comes across the Kidron Valley. He comes up and in through the eastern gate of the city. He comes into the temple. And there he clears the temple of the unrighteousness that's going on in those outer courts. Then he turns around and leaves. He doesn't stay. The glory of God in the person of Christ does not stay in the city because he goes to the heart of the nation there at that temple and sin remains. And so he leaves. He goes back out the eastern gate. He goes out across the Kidron Valley. He goes up the Mount of Olives and leaves from there. And he departs out to Bethany and stays the night there. Interesting. Ezekiel replayed. But you know what? When, in fact, when Jesus ascends finally after his resurrection, he ascends from the Mount of Olives. But you know, another prophet describes when the Lord returns. Do you know where he returns to? He sets his foot down the Mount of Olives. In fact, his foot is so heavy that it splits the mountain in two. 
And he, he proceeds from there. The Lord himself proceeds across the Kidron Valley and he comes in the eastern gate. There's a problem. Did you know the eastern gate is bricked closed? You look at a city of Jerusalem today. You see the temple in the background. You see the wall and there's this big gate and it's bricked closed. There's a cemetery in front of it. Back around the 11th century or so, the Muslims did that because they heard of this, this um, myth or story, this belief that a great Jewish deliverer would one day come through that very gate, and so they bricked it closed. Psalm 24 says this, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, lift them up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory will come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord himself will step foot on the Mount of Olives, come across the Kidron Valley. He will come in through that eastern gate, and the presence of God in the person of Christ will return to his temple and reestablish his throne there. See, that works through from Ezekiel to the Gospels all the way to, all the, way to the book of Revelation and the second coming of Christ. He is the presence of God. When he says then, I go to prepare a place for you. Why? That where I am, there you may be also in my presence. That's the restoration of the gospel. We nibble around the edges of it already. We nibble around that edges of the presence of God as we walk with him in the midst of his mission, as we give ourselves away as the Lord Jesus did. I want to point your attention to something in your bulletin. There's a corner down there in the bottom of your bulletin in the announcements that says looking for ways to serve. One of the least of these, one of the little places to serve, one of the easy places to serve is right here in our midst, nursery, preschool, teaching kids. Help is needed. There are things that won't happen unless people say, yes, I could help do that. That, again, is what that white card's for. That's going to be what the offering is for. Will I give myself to being used by God, not afraid to proclaim, not afraid to tell, being used by God to show and tell the gospel in the message of both our accountability to God and his restoration, God's restoration. I want to close with this. I had a dream last night. I don't know if it was the sauce that Julie had on dinner. I don't know if it was missions connection and all the excitement with that. I don't know if it's because I was reading about Ezekiel and visions all week. But I had a strange dream last night. I dreamed that I was dying. I was reasonably healthy as I am right now. In fact, it was a very current dream. It was a today dream. It was very clear to me I was dying. I was being removed from the picture. I wasn't sickly yet or anything like that, but I had word that I was going to, there was some medical deal, something was about to happen inside my head. And I was going to die like within the next week. And it was clear, the doctors knew it. And they'd given me the word, I was dying. And I looked around at what I had done and how I had given myself to be used. And it wasn't enough. It's weird to have this dream just last night. But it reminded me. In the dream, I was actually removed for my own neglect. I was being removed for my neglect that I hadn't yielded myself enough. And so time was up. Now, I don't know why I had that dream. Like I said, I don't know if it was just Ezekiel on the brain. But there's something about that that the Lord used to stir my heart. I want to be a prophet compelled. 
not afraid to speak up. I want to be a prophet peculiar who's different in ways that show and tell the gospel. I want to be a prophet not distracted, a prophet who stays on message, the message of accountability and the message of his restoration. How about you? What is it that's set before us that we must not neglect, that we must give ourselves to? Who is it that is set before you? that you must not neglect, you must give yourself for. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to the end of our morning, the time to receive the offering. In that offering, we'll receive as well the communications that we've been here, we have worshipped. We want more information about this or that. We need prayer for this thing or that thing. We will put in this offering, Lord, our gift back to you from what you've given us. But Lord, would that include things on that white card that are how we would give ourselves away? Lord, stir in our hearts how you would use us as a prophet peculiar in this world. Lord, stir us and how you would use weak vessels like us to show and tell your gospel that confronts sin, but restores and gives a new life. Lord, might Ezekiel's message be true in this body, among these people, in ways that bring you glory. Lord, receive this offering, both the money that's given, but especially, Lord, the hearts that are given, the commitments that are made, devoted to you. And we thank you and give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. To proclaim. To-